Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. For the past 40 years, the debate about the proliferation of guns in America has revolved around the NRA. All public policy, all debate has been shaped and driven by the political influence of the NRA. Few, if any, lobby groups in American history have ever been so powerful for so long. And how did this power evolve? And what led to its downfall? What was behind its scorched earth, never given inch philosophy? And was it simple greed and old-fashioned corruption that brought it down? Or was it simply a victim of its own political success? And what does it tell us about the broader culture that operates in Washington? Four years of research have given my guest Tim Mack some answers to these and many other questions about the NRA. Tim Mack is National Public Radio's Washington investigative correspondent. He was one of NPR's lead reporters on the Mueller investigation. And in 2017, he broke the story of Russian agent Maria Butina and her connection with the NRA. It is my pleasure to welcome Tim Mack here to talk about his book, Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Of course, anytime. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. When one goes back to the early days of the NRA, was there a single overarching vision, a plan, a, a thought to make the organization as powerful and politically influential as it ultimately became? Well, there have been a lot of pivot points with the NRA over time. I mean, it forms, we want to go all the way back, it forms in the 19th century after the Civil War as a way to promote rifle marksmanship. And for most of its history, for much of the 20th century, it's not an organization really focused that much on uh, lobbying and political advocacy. It doesn't have the kind of behemoth political power that it has now. In fact, a lot uh, during much of the 20th century, it wasn't that, that much focused on pushing back against uh, legislation or restriction on guns. But in the late 70s, there's a big shift in the organization. The, uh, the NRA had been kind of more focused on shooting sports and gun safety and recreation as its focus and was thinking actually of leaving Washington, D.C. for Colorado to emphasize its, um, its uh, basis and its focus on recreational sports. But there, it's a nonprofit that's also really very grassroots driven. So its bylaws allow for uh, members meetings and at the convention in 1977, basically uh, there was a revolt among the members and they pushed a lot of the executives out and reshaped it as a political advocacy organization. There are a bunch of other um, pivotal moments here, but that's kind of the big one uh, in the late 70s that changes it uh, to a, uh, an organization focused primarily on political advocacy. And when it made that pivot in the late 70s, talk a little bit about who were the ones shaping that idea that it would become this political advocacy organization and what they saw as its evolution at that point. Well, it, it, it's really interesting. I mean, the NRA at the time, there were, there were a bunch of, um, there were a bunch of conflicts. I mean, the history of the NRA is really one of different factions trying to put a coalition together. And at the time, there were people who are focus more on hunting and shooting sports, and those who wanted to take a hard line on Second Amendment advocacy. Now, those people uh, ended up winning the day and pushing the NRA towards a more kind of Second Amendment uh, uh, legislative approach to policy. And it's through this process that uh, one name emerges that will be really important through the last 35 plus years of the NRA, and that's a guy by the name of Wayne LaPierre. He's been the 
head of the organization since the early 90s. And it's, uh, there's no understanding the NRA in its current form without understanding who Wayne LaPierre is. Where did LaPierre come from before the NRA? What was his background? You know, it's interesting that a lot of the senior members of the NRA today, or at least in the, over the last 10 years, have been former Democrats or come from Democratic politics. Um, Wayne LaPierre was a Democratic staffer, got a job offer from Tip O'Neill, uh, and, and was kind of uh, someone who, you know, at the time, in the, in the, in the late 80s or so, um, you know, Democrats were some of the NRA's most strategic and valuable allies. Um, that it wasn't that gun legislation and the gun debate wasn't strictly a one or the other party type thing. Um, so Wayne LaPierre and many others in the NRA ended up coming from the Democratic Party. When did LaPierre realize that, that this organization is something that could enrich him and enhance him personally and politically? Well, uh, Wayne LaPierre, if you talk to people who have known him for many, many decades, going back to the 80s, they'll say, the, the Wayne I knew then was just not someone who was into the finer things in life. They knew him as Mr. Rumpled Suit, you know. Um, he wore cheap shoes. He's a lobbyist on Capitol Hill. Didn't drink alcohol, though he's always happy to buy a legislator a drink, you know. Um, but he was just one of those awkward, silent, um, not particularly charismatic types who got things done and really was a political junkie. Um, over time, he gets married to a woman named Susan LaPierre, who becomes kind of a, a, a hidden hand in the NRA. And she's very much different than Wayne. Uh, she's someone who loves the lavish lifestyle, the private jets, the exotic vacations. And, you know, and, and as the NRA gets wealthier and wealthier, and as Susan LaPierre and Wayne LaPierre begin to enjoy these kind of trappings of life, paid for by the nonprofit that they ostensibly work for, um, they begin, there's this lifestyle creep that comes up. And suddenly everything's a work expense. Suddenly everything can be justified as being put on the company credit card. And that's an evolution that I detail throughout Misfire, right? It, it's, it's amazing to see this descent into, into corruption um, through the personalities who lived it. And to what extent was there ever any, until the end, obviously, and we'll get to that, but, but during this earlier period when, when Susan comes on the scene and, and this sort of focus starts to happen on, on lifestyle for LaPierre, was there ever any early pushback to this within the organization? You know, the, the NRA uh, traditionally has been a very kind of um, modest organization. Uh, there's an anecdote that I relay in the book about how Susan LaPierre wore a very elegant and expensive dress to an NRA function. And there were tons of whispers in and around her about how it was inappropriate for someone who was married to the head of a nonprofit to be wearing such, a, such an expensive dress that it just was kind of untoward. It was kind of unheard of. Of course, that sort of, that sort of uh, attitude is not the current state of affairs in the NRA and at a lot of nonprofits. In fact, now, uh, you know, 20 plus years later after that anecdote, um, Susan LaPierre is the head of kind of this elite world of million dollar plus women donors who have given to the NRA. And there's actually a tier system within the uh, within NRA women now based on how much money you've given to the NRA. Um, they're based on brooches so you could get an 
emerald brooch or a diamond brooch based on how much money you've given to the organization. And, and you know, uh, these, these designer brands are now the rule and not the exception. Who were the people that LaPierre surrounded himself with in terms of running the organization? It's really interesting because you, if you look into the background of some of the folks who were uh, surrounding Wayne uh, and his close advisors, you, you, you get a kind of rogues gallery of, of people. I mean, his, his closest uh, personal assistant was, of, uh, was a convicted felon who was um, convicted of embezzling money. Um, you know, the, one of the chief financial officers of the organization had been accused himself of, uh, of embezzlement before, right before coming to the NRA, although he wasn't charged or convicted of a crime. Um, there were a lot of people around Wayne LaPierre who had shady business practices and had no business um, being near the management of an organization that takes in hundreds of millions of dollars a year and was a nonprofit. You look at the people who are around there, and they had no expertise or uh, basis to say that they could hold uh, an organization of that size accountable. You know, another big promise, the NRA has a board of directors that's totally unsuited for the task of overseeing such a massive organization. They, they've got like 76 members on the board, 76. It's an incredibly unwieldy board. One person who has served on the board kind of um, uh, compared it to the Politburo. <laughs> they had, you know, that uh, any decision being made was impossible. And uh, because power was so diffuse, it ended up not being a very good check on the executives at all. Wayne LaPierre was someone who uh, knew how to kind of place people who supported him on the board. Um, over time, you know, you look at the resumes of people on that board as well, and it's largely a lot of them are gun activists. They're selected for one, loyalty to uh, Wayne and Susan LaPierre, and two, if they're, you know, prominent in activism. Now, that's fine, but um, if you look at the 76 members, very few have the finance background, the legal background, the management background, that you need to serve as oversight on an organization taking in hundreds of millions of dollars a year. What was it about LaPierre that attracted him to hire such a shady rogues gallery of people to surround him in running the organization? I think I, I, I would I would flip the question. I think that that people with that background were attracted to Wayne Lapierre. I mean, the portrait that I draw of Wayne uh, is a really interesting one, and one I didn't expect when I came into writing this book. You know, I I I, I kind of had this image of Wayne Lapierre as the one that the NRA likes to kind of put out into the universe. But if you talk to people who've known Wayne, his close friends, his close associates, and I talked to you know, over 120 people uh, for this for this book uh, in the NRA universe, and they almost they universally describe Wayne Lapierre as a deeply anxious, conflict-averse um, uh, kind of person, almost a cowardly figure, someone who's easily taken advantage of uh, or harangued into doing something that he otherwise wouldn't want to do, just in order to avoid conflict. You know, the the book starts out with this scene. And it's the late 90s, and it's Wayne LaPierre's wedding. And he doesn't show up. He doesn't want to get married to Susan LaPierre. And he's outside, and the ceremony is long delayed. Everyone's wondering what's going on. And his best man slaps a $100 bill on the dashboard of the car that they're in and says, hey, you know, I don't think you should get married today either. We can drive out of here. Um, but Wayne goes in, and he kind of gets berated into the ceremony by 
uh, by his bride. And then, you know, at this very awkward, weird ceremony, surrounded by NRA luminaries, uh, the ceremony continues. And, and it's just one of the most remarkable things that the people in the audience have ever seen. He won't make eye contact with his bride during the vows. He's looking up and down and left and right. It's clear he doesn't want to be there, but he goes through with it anyway. And it says something about Wayne LaPierre. And I think it's a theme throughout his, his life and his tenure at the head of the NRA that people have realized, powerful people in the NRA have realized that if you berate or yell at Wayne long enough or you demand something strenuously enough, he's eventually going to give you what you want. And that could be millions of dollars in sweetheart deals for insiders with contracts with the NRA or golden parachutes for senior executives on the way out. People have just learned that he's a vulnerable person and, and can be easily taken advantage of. How does this square with what became the NRA philosophy to never give an inch, that, that, that even you know the slightest camel's nose under the tent would be the end of the whole enterprise, as, as they argued it? That strong-willed position, how does that square with who LaPierre was? I don't think it does square. There's a, really, there's a big difference between the NRA strategic position and the personality of the leader of the NRA. Um, and there is an irony there. But one thing that's so interesting about that no compromise position is that, uh, that we literally can go inside the room and hear it happen. So one thing that I broke on NPR um, just a, a short while ago was these secret NRA Columbine tapes. Basically, the day after the Columbine tragedy, NRA officials and executives and lobbyists, they all scrambled onto a conference call to try to figure out what to do. By chance, the NRA convention had been scheduled for just over a week later after the Columbine shooting and just miles away from, uh, from the, the site of the shooting in Denver, Colorado. And so it was this enormous crisis. We can hear them in real time over two and a half hours of tape talk about what they should do in response to the shooting. And you hear them consider a softer tone, a million dollars victims fund, baby. Or maybe they can cancel their convention entirely. But as the wheels are turning, they land on this conclusion that uh, becomes kind of their playbook for the shootings uh, of the, of the sad uh, era to come, which is that if they give an inch, uh, it'll, be, it'll be seen as, that, as if they were implicit uh, or an admission of responsibility. That they can't give, you know, they can't set up a fund, they can't cancel their convention, because the press will absolutely um, frame it as a capitulation and an admission of guilt. To what extent did Sandy Hook potentially change that? I don't think Sandy Hook changed that no compromise view. I think, if anything, it made it more severe. I mean, there was some time after Sandy Hook uh, in which a number of people inside the NRA organization thought that they could take a softer tone, much like after Columbine. Um, in, in particular, you know, one of the big moves after Sandy Hook was to expand background checks, expand background checks. And um, uh, there were some folks in the NRA who had no problem with that whatsoever. Uh, but, you know, way up here, there, there's been this big tension in the organization between lobbyists who are interested in legislative compromises and then uh, PR people, membership people, fundraising people who are uh, concerned about jitting up the base and, uh, and advocating a more radical message in order to do so. 
And that's always been a big source of tension. After Sandy Hook, Wayne LaPierre gets on stage and says that the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And essentially the new line for the NRA is more guns in school. And, and this was kind of super appalling to some people inside the NRA. And I, I tell the behind the scenes stories of, of how that all unfolded inside NRA headquarters uh, in this fire. Um, but essentially there were a lot of people who were very upset inside the organization about it, but it really represented the turn of the NRA away from, you know, you remember me saying earlier that, that Democrats were a huge strategic ally for the NRA in the past. After Sandy Hook, that really changes. The, the NRA doesn't uh, focus its outreach to Democrats anymore. In fact, there are, uh, there are very, very few Democrats nowadays that are, uh, that are courted by the NRA. Um, the NRA now, uh, after Sandy Hook, has pushed exclusively to, to, uh, to gain the support of uh, conservatives and Republicans. And more and more than that, after Sandy Hook, um, the NRA decided to be not just a Second Amendment organization, but a kind of culture war organization, one that stood uh, stood between the government and uh, its members in terms of all sorts of freedoms. And so the NRA kind of enters the culture war after after Sandy Hook. And who drove that decision to to really move it towards a culture warrior organization? Um, the, the NRA was pushed by many different forces, but uh, there's this one organization in particular that was in charge of the NRA's strategic messaging and PR, and it's an organization called Ackerman McQueen. Ackerman McQueen for decades and decades has been a kind of symbiotic organization, paid tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars over time to give advice to the NRA, and they really were in charge of the message. They were a big they were really very much behind a lot of this push for a more radical message after Sandy Hook. Talk a little bit about how the NRA responded to the Trump era. Well, it, what's so interesting is that, that you have to kind of start in the Obama era to give it a little context. So after Sandy Hook, um, uh, the NRA actually gets a ton of new money and new members. People are worried about legislation that might restrict their ownership of guns or uh, the NRA is also pushing out this messaging that the Obama administration wants to come after them or seize them or, or whatever else. And so there's a lot of money. And in this time of prosperity, the NRA's corrupt actions develop. Um, the misconduct begins to, uh, to develop further and further and further. And this culminates uh, in this time of plenty with the election of Donald Trump. The, the NRA spends tens of millions of dollars to support Donald Trump, uh, more than $30 million. More even than Trump's own super PAC spent in the 2016 election. But the, the irony here is that though that's what the NRA wanted, and that's what its members wanted, um, the election of Trump actually starts to spell the beginning of the end for the NRA. Because uh, after Trump is elected, fundraising goes off a cliff, and so does membership. They didn't have any strategic plan for how to deal with uh, an electoral success. And so in this financial contraction, uh, all sorts of problems begin to bubble up as money is no longer there to solve their problems. Internal whistleblowers begin to raise questions about what's going on inside the organization. Um, other uh, officials inside the NRA start to wonder what's going on. Reporters like myself start to make headway, trying to figure out what's happening inside the NRA. Um, it really begins to develop, and the Trump era really spells trouble for the NRA. 
And in that sense, it's a classic case of an organization being a victim of its own success. I, I think that's certainly one way to put it. Um, you know, during the Obama era, this is the era of the private jets and the lavish meals and the trips to the Bahamas to, to be on a yacht and uh, going to Europe and six figures in Italian menswear for Waymar Pierre's use. I mean, this is, this is the period where when they're successful, they really start to feel like they're getting away with something. And Wayne and Susan LaPierre, as they're hobnobbing with their millionaire friends, they feel like they deserve some of, the, some of these perks of life as well. And you know what's interesting is that, you know, if they were, cor- if they were corporate executives, some of this would have been okay, at least from a legal and tax standpoint. Right. But because they were part of a nonprofit and because they tried to hide uh, their expenses in some ways from, from the public, um, this became a huge problem when investigators began to get involved. And talk a little bit about this trip to Russia in 2015. Yeah, so NRA officials go on this trip to Russia. It's kind of an illustration of how the NRA was, uh, and its top officials just used the NRA as a piggy bank whenever, piggy bank whenever they liked. There's no particular reason related to the, to the um, organization's primary mission to go to Russia. But um, many officials had their own sort of personal reasons, private commercial ventures that they want to pursue there. And they go to Russia in 2015 and basically use the NRA as a piggy bank to support them. Talk a little bit about Maria Butina and how she's important in this, this end stage of the NRA. So Maria Butina is this Russian citizen who shows up in the United States and begins infiltrating the NRA, networking with all sorts of people across the conservative movement and the conservative world. And she's extremely successful about it. You know, when I started writing this book, one thing that I was, you know, really wondering is what, if anything, did Russia give to the NRA? And what I, what it turns out to be is it, it's um, that the story is the other way around, that the NRA gave a lot to support the NRA, <clears throat> to, to support the Russian government agent, Maria Butina, that they were so easily played by this individual and began paying for her travel and her hotel rooms and uh, her networking and her conferences. Um, it's a really remarkable story of how easily the NRA was played. What was her connection? What did we ultimately find out was her involvement in, in connecting both Russia and the NRA? So she was charged and ultimately convicted of conspiracy to be an unregistered Russian government agent. Um, and in testimony in that, uh, uh, intelligence officials, basically uh, in testimony during that trial, intel- uh, intelligence officials were talking about her as someone as a kind of spot and obsess individual. Someone who wasn't formally an intelligence agent per se, but someone who was developing networking furtherance of a foreign government. And so she spent time in prison for this, was ultimately deported, and left the United States. What do you think the future of the organization is today? Well, we get to the investigations, which begin in and around 2018 and 2019 at a time of real financial crisis for the NRA. The investigators uh, for, for Congress and for the New York Attorney General start to look into the NRA's finances. And the New York Attorney General, after an 18-month investigation, finds tens of millions of dollars in misconduct and misspending among top executives at the NRA. And what they do is they filed a lawsuit seeking to dissolve to dissolve the organization in its entirety, in its entirety. 
And so this is something that is a real existential threat to the NRA. Uh, it's something that uh, that could actually uh, could actually happen over the next year or year and a half or two years as this court case goes on. It's a very dramatic situation. And in fact, the NRA and what happens to gun politics is going to really uh, depend on the outcome of this case. And do you think the organization survives? I think it's in serious mortal peril right now in, in that the, the NRA, there's been plenty of evidence of its wrongdoing out in public, in sworn depositions, on the stand, documentary evidence. It's hard to deny that what, is, uh, what they're being accused of is, uh, is true. It's very hard to deny that. Um, so the question will be, how does a judge determine what the appropriate steps to take? Will a judge toss out senior executives or do what the New York Attorney General has been asking for, which is to dissolve the organization entirely? And what do you see its impact on, on the NRA mission, ultimately? I think in the short term, there's a lot of dis- disarray in the NRA. But, you know, when you talk about when you talk to lawmakers about why they're concerned about the National Rifle Association, what you hear from them is they're not so much worried about the NRA's money, although the m- money is always helpful. What they're worried about is uh, the NRA's millions of members flooding their inboxes and uh, busting up their switchboard and um, yelling at them at town halls. That's what they're really concerned about. And the NRA, even in its financial state, has, has millions of members who are passionate and easily mobilized for gun legislation. Now, that's why in a, in a, in a Washington, D.C. that has a Democratic House and Senate and Democratic White House, uh, there's not really any serious conversation about gun legislation right now. Tim Mack, his book is Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. Tim, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you.